Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and this is the 102nd episode of the podcast titled Revolution Z. Our topic this time is a follow-up to the election of Biden over Trump. It is based on a Collective 20 article of the same name. What next? Collective 20, remember, is a group of writers publishing collectively under that name, Collective 20, or for our purposes, C20. The members are Andres Grubacek, Brett Wilkins, Bridget Meehan, Cynthia Peters, Don Rojas, Elena Harada, Emily Jones, Justin Poder, Mark Evans, Medea Benjamin, myself, Noam Chomsky, Oscar Chacon, Peter Bomer, Savina Chowdhury, and Vincent Emanuele. C20's writers are located in different places throughout the globe. Some are young, some older. Some are long-time organizers and writers, others just getting started. But all are equally dedicated to offering analysis, vision, and strategy useful for winning a vastly better society than we currently endure. The members of Collective 20 hope that their contributions concerning social, political, economic, and environmental issues will generate more useful content and better outreach through collective writing effort as opposed to individuals publishing only on their own. C20's cumulative work can be found at collective20.org, where you can learn more about the group, see an archive of its publications, and comment on its work. So the C20 piece I am going to convey here, plus some comments of my own, added here, begins. What just happened? Liberation? Certainly not. Justice triumphant? Not that either. Exit a nasty nightmare? Enter a desirable dream? Nope. Not that. So far, what just happened is more like that we escaped an impending apocalypse and we entered a nasty nightmare. And so, continued C20, what's next? Restless, ugly acceptance? Hopefully not. A poison parade over our supine cells, smiling upward to unify with establishment vipers? Hopefully not. Outrage, sustained, combative, wakefulness while we snarl at the vipers but mainly fight for better lives? Hopefully so. There is certainly no shame, and undeniably plenty of joy to be had in watching the orange gargoyle depart. Did you smile at that? Did you laugh at that? Dance at that? Strike a pose? Share a joint? Smile wide at that? All that was warranted. But to let our joy at Trump's forced exit morph into thoughts that see Biden as benighted, Democrats as saviors, or winning the election as itself guaranteeing the dawn of truly great, or even merely good days, continued C20, there would be some shame and also a lot of misery in that. Less bad is not inexorably great, nor even significantly good. Those aims require more struggle. Four years ago, one reason for voting for Clinton over Trump was that to not do so would mean four more years of grim losses followed by being in a position to elect essentially just another Clinton. I should interject that that foretelling was sadly quite correct. Biden is essentially just another Sanders-defying, Sanders-denying, Sanders-denigrating Clinton. But C-20 continued, Electing essentially just another Clinton, we now have to reverse the mess left by Trump before being able to pursue sustained, informed, militant campaigns to win seriously positive changes. And so indeed, here we are, stuck with reversing excesses, not just rushing to seek positive gains. But, and this is a big but, we are here with some new positives. We not only have Trump's legacy to reverse to get back to where we were, but we also have outside stores of anger, 
We have enriched and enlarged experience of grassroots activism and overflowing eruptions of positive desires. And we even have newly developed and greatly enlarged organizational vehicles of program and struggle. And we have all of that oriented to winning new change regarding systemic racism, rampant sexism, structural inequality, political inanity, and market corporate ecological suicide. And I interject, C20 is right. This is no small difference. From the Sanders campaigns, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, climate justice activism, the lessons of COVID, and much more, there is a whole lot of new potential to address. But, C20 continued, yet all is not rosy. First, there is a huge citizen contingent that mainly just wants to breathe easy, restore business as usual, shop as usual, and angst as usual, however much that would objectively mean false breaths, profit-seeking, and pollution-spewing business, alienated shopping, and outsized angst. And C20 added, We don't have in mind only the third of the country that didn't vote at all, plus the largest portion of Trump's voters who aren't neck-deep in fascist fantasy. We also have in mind a large part of the third that elected Biden. And, second, there is a lack of shared clarity on what our positive desires ought to encompass, and even more so, a lack of informed agreement as to how we might best formulate our desires so as to widen their support and orient them toward winning still grander aims in the future. And last, there is the nasty reality that a third of the country voted for Trump, much of whom are supposed to be ought to be, are absolutely needed to be, and certainly could be, allies in seeking fundamental change, but who are not, at least not yet. And, oh yes, there is Establishment Joe, now at the helm and likely looking to ally with a still Republican Senate to submerge progressive Democrats. So C-20 asks, what to do, what to do? And C-20 answers, no one really knows, not confidently, not unless they are parroting past pretenses. And yet, maybe we can agree on some early steps that we ought to undertake to get to the point where growing numbers of citizens not only know what is worth doing, but take on the associated tasks. And perhaps we can even agree on one giant step, too. Okay, adds C20. First, there is the obvious. Okay, adds C20. First, there is the obvious. We have to battle Biden. This includes forcing him to elevate and not marginalize Democrats to his left. It includes forcing progressive cabinet appointments and forcing a first hundred days of real substance, including rousing support for and forcing as just a few possible aims to deal with COVID sanely and to simultaneously hugely aid lockdown recovery for those most hurt, to pursue climate and ecological sanity by reversing Trump's damage to each and then move aggressively forward with a Green New Deal to tackle racial injustices from police violence and border immigration insanity, to broader issues of systemic institutional racism, including disbanding ICE and reconceiving security and law as well, to pursue a wealth tax, a reduced work week, a $20 an hour minimum wage, labor law reform, debt forgiveness, and full employment, to pursue electoral reform, including an end to the electoral college and a start to rank choice voting, to enlarge the Supreme Court, to pursue international talks with Iran, China, Cuba, Venezuela, and Russia, including seeking nuclear disarmament, rejecting regime change, and cutting back overseas bases, to recognize the International Criminal Court, an International Court of Justice, 
and to open discussions of massive cuts in military expenditures, and so on. Then add C20, comes what may be less obvious, and what is certainly long-term. The election maps we have all seen are incredible. It isn't red states versus blue states that jumps out. It is rural regions versus urban regions in nearly every state, whether the state is red or blue. There is diversity in each realm, of course, but there is no denying, at least to our eyes, that rural working people are more likely to support reactionary formulations than are urban working people. Sometimes we who want positive change, and especially fundamental positive change, are content to rally those who agree with us. We are content to say hooray for our side, and to essentially ignore, or even dismissively castigate, those who do not agree with us. But if we actually want to win, not only an election between reactionary fascism and business as usual, but a steady flow of positive changes seeking a new world, C20 continues, we need to understand what in the lives of rural America tends to warp sensible and courageous and even radical or revolutionary anger at their undeniable travail and pain into suicidal support for a reactionary. We need to understand not only the economic travail and pain, which ought to have had the opposite effect, but also the cultural and familial and daily life conditions that play a role. How, asked C20, can organizers, and even just neighbors, learn how to listen to and talk to Trumpist rural Americans unless those seeking change seriously hear their complaints, their pains, and their preferences, and sincerely address them, without, however, an iota of pandering to antisocial biases or confusions? And I interject, and I interject without an iota of holier-than-thou arrogance and self-importance. C20 continues, Don't change seekers need to discern the structural elements of rural life that are presumably different from the structural elements of urban life and that contribute to rural citizens having the views they do. This does not require curbing the progressive wing. It requires elevating it. The rural-urban difference isn't just closed factories, the opioid plague, devastated infrastructure, and the like, which urban America has as well, and which, in any case, should on its own generate left-leaning and not right-leaning anger. It must also be other, more prevalently rural and less prevalently urban factors. Is it a lack of rural racial and ethnic diversity, asked C20? Is it that low rural population density creates little option for escape and incredible pressure to conform to family and church as the only vehicles sustaining survival? Is it a lack of rural cultural options? Whatever it is, asked C20, shouldn't a strategy for change be attuned to and learn how to address the relevant factors without polarizing rural constituencies? Shouldn't a strategy for change welcome and empower workers, both rural and urban, even while not jettisoning, but only expanding and deepening progressive program, albeit communicated more clearly and effectively? Put differently, roughly speaking, says C20, a third of voting age citizens stayed home. A third voted for Trump, and a third voted for Biden, which meant voted mostly against Trump. For those of us who ultimately want fundamental change, and indeed in the shorter run who even want just seriously discernible change, cynicism, confusion, and more confusion is not a winning hand. I have to interject that the fact that some people can't seem to acknowledge that simple observation strikes me as incredible, but C20 continues less incredulously. 
How do serious leftists who want serious or especially fundamental change arouse more of the absent voters, cause defections by more Trump voters, and simultaneously radicalize the commitment and agendas of Biden voters and the country's most progressive constituencies? What change in our approach to writing, speaking, and organizing might simultaneously aid all those necessary tasks? Part of it will certainly be battling Biden for the kinds of gains mentioned earlier. But beyond fighting for progressive gains against Biden, figuring out how we might better interact, what we might better say and demand, how we might better demonstrate, and especially how we might better sustain and organize lasting involvement from wider constituencies is a big task with no overnight answers. I have to interject, but can we please at least agree that it needs doing? that it needs priority attention, that it needs proposals. C20 makes one proposal, they continue. But maybe there is one big step we could consider at a moment like now, despite that it is ordinarily far from our perception. Imagine we had more left unity, more left mutual aid, more left scale. Imagine we could unsilo many of our efforts. Imagine we could entwine them, yet not also have any of them lose their separate priorities and agendas. Imagine we could unsilo, entwine, and have all the component efforts each only gain more sway and more power. Wouldn't that be a big step forward? One big left with many dynamic parts. Is there a way to attain that kind of solidarity, asks C20, with a diversity of unity and autonomy, without undercutting what exists, and without submerging each current facet of the left into a weakened compromise stance. Maybe, C20 suggests, and goes on. Suppose some major forces, say DSA, Black Lives Matter, the Movement for People's Party, and numerous other national, regional, and local voices and vehicles, put forth a call to unify left efforts into a larger-than-ever-before structure, within which each component would retain its own integrity and agenda, but for which the encompassing whole would be the sum of all its parts. The new approach would not be a coalition with a least common denominator focus. It would instead be a massive amalgam of all its member movements, organizations, and projects, with its combined focus the sum of all its components' focuses. Call the whole thing, for the sake of discussion, the left block, or TLB. The idea, continued C20, is that TLB's component groups would pledge to aid one another's endeavors, to respect one another's campaigns and programs, and to each lend support to the rest. The agenda of the whole would be the sum of the agendas of the parts. The agenda of the whole would be a massive manifestation of activist mutual aid and collective organizing. TLB would be a movement of movements. Perhaps it could even include agreeing to a common vision manifesto for a better world that all members signed up to and committed to achieving. I interject. I can imagine it. I can see its incredible potential. Can you? But C20 anticipated concerns and continued, Yes, if TLB or something like it were to strive for the widest possible left membership, it implies there would be contradictions. But the differences would be openly present, freely admitted, and respectfully explored. With opposed views represented, offered C20, the most supported would persist and also predominate in a shared program. But so would different minority options persist and be explored and even tried alongside more supported options when possible. 
The usual terminal friction between disagreeing parties would, in the left block, due to its pledges and rules, due especially to the mutual benefits of its maintenance to all its participants, and perhaps even due to agreeing on an overarching broad vision manifesto, wouldn't evaporate, but would also not explode. Such friction would instead be the focus of ongoing discussion. Multi-tactic, multi-issue, multi-focus, the whole left block would have the back of and aid the efforts of each of its components. Each component would seriously listen to, learn from, and engage with the whole and its other parts. Single-issue struggles and groups would still exist, but they would be supported and supportive, and so there would be no more single-issue silos. There would be no more competing, as if we were opponents, no more reflexive hostility toward others. There would be both and, not either or. Disagreements, yes, continued C20, Growth entails disagreement and resolutions. But disagreement would disavow dismissal and antipathy. Disagreement would pursue joint projects, the advance of the whole, and the interests of all involved. Each member would have an interest in that goal. The means would be mutual support, mutual aid, serious, sober self and joint assessment, and respectful experimentation, including with opposed approaches. The left block, in whatever precise form such a thing might take, and with whatever inspiring name it might adopt, would learn to win. I interject. Is this a wild, naive, silly dream? Given currently rampant skepticism, extreme individualism, and escalating morbid depression, no doubt many might think so. Let's not seek something so new they may feel. Let's plow on as we have. But to me, the left block proposal addresses ills we all know we must transcend. Made real, the left block proposal would transcend those ills. So why not try it? Isn't that what it means to dare to win? C20 continued to make the case. There are more left organizations, memberships, campaigns, struggles, and desires than in decades, wrote C20. Can these many manifestations combine into one lasting structure of a new sort, even as they each maintain their own definitions, asked C20. Wouldn't that help us seek to not only escape corporate business as usual, but also activist business as usual, hoped C20. Could such a transformation and trusting step work? Is such a transformative and trusting step needed? These are issues for assessment, and hopefully for action, aren't they? advised C20. And C20 concluded, Markets and culture and our upbringings and habits make us on the left silo and atomistically compete with one another, even as we demand that society should become participatory and cooperative. Is it time to get our own house in order, even as we keep reaching out? Can we? We certainly can't if we don't try, so let's give our best. If something like TLB isn't the way, okay, then what is? And I interject, I have to say, I think that is a fair challenge. And I have to add that I hope that coming from a writer's collective as experienced as C20, the left block ideal will get a serious hearing and provoke serious consideration. Indeed, maybe having heard it in this episode of Revolution Z, you can promote others to listen or read it, and also assess it yourself. Maybe you can find fault or come up with better, or maybe you can determine its merits, like it, and advocate it. In either case, engaging would be positive. And that said, this is Michael Albert, signing off until next time for Revolution Z.